The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abual Samad. Last one of the year, but we're not going to do one of those wrap up things that everybody else is doing. Um, even so, uh, we want to talk about what we're driving. And I still have the Ram, so nobody wants to hear me babble more about that. Uh, well, unless you have anything new to say about it. I still really like it. Um, it's a very nice truck. I might have been off about the price last week. It was, I think it's this one actually is about fifty six thousand. I might have said forty six. Okay. Uh, you can you can get a Bighorn or a North Edition for forty six. So uh, yeah, good good truck. Um, is the is the twelve inch screen? growing on you or getting more annoying uh well this one i think i this one has oh, you don't the, have the 12 inch do you right has the eight inch screen and that's like that's okay um you know it's it's uh it's you connect one of the weirdest things though is sometimes when you start it it boots up very confused and the the uh, audio system it's almost like there's a malfunction with the um like the speed compensating volume thing and it's just like if it's on one of the the either FM or AM radio, it'll just smush the volume of what you're listening to. It just it does weird stuff, and like you have to actually like park, shut it off, open the door, close it, and make sure you've put it on XM before you start it again. And then it wakes up and it's fine. So hmm. I, you know, I, I don't know. I wonder That's if they've they, they prob- that. They, they probably you know made some software updates, and there's probably a bug somewhere uh, with the volume control system. Yeah. Yeah, that's my guess. Is like it's it's probably not a, a big deal. It's annoying, but um, but you know what? Know there, there, there's this round knob that you can just give it a quick twist and yeah, fix that real fast. Well, <laughs> so that works, but the volume it's like it, something's going on where it's like automatically adjusting gain on its own. Uh. So it gets like that'll be fine, and then all of a sudden it'll just you know it'll back off whatever kind of limiting it's trying to do or whatever, and then it'll just it'll it'll pounds you with very loud audio and then it'll 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 sort of latch against so i don't i don't know what's up with that have you tried going in and, and turning off uh speed compensating volume yes and that didn't help <laughs> did not okay um so i yeah i don't know i, I love the troubleshooting uh um sort of uh that we're, we're working through because that's that's really key like with anything that that whole troubleshooting process and i i didn't realize that there's a lot of people that don't know how to do that where they're like okay let's try this one thing 
Okay, that didn't work. Let's try this other thing. Okay, that didn't work. Like, no, no, no. See, the, the modern method of troubleshooting is you just go on Twitter and start whining about it. <laughs> I have not that's done a, that. That's how you troubleshoot in 2018. You don't yeah. You don't actually try to go through and, and understand what the root cause of the problem might be. You just go on Twitter and start saying that, you know, Ram has totally screwed this up and, you know, it's a total piece of, you know, crap yeah but yes uh, you know that that's you know or or you know, better yet even doing it on on reddit oh yeah yeah oh <laughs> um i speaking of reddit and twitter and stuff there was uh the i think it was was it ed niedermeyer who posted about somebody on on uh reddit uh complaining about their their loner <laughs> From because they had to drop off their Tesla. And like, Wait, there's buttons. There's tens of buttons. Oh, yeah, <laughs> because like, they, they got a they got a car that wasn't a Tesla as a right. loaner. It was it was some some conventional car. Right, and it's I didn't so I didn't realize to go on a little bit of a tangent. I didn't realize that uh, Tesla owners like the hardcore cult members. Um, they talk about any other car as an ICE, you know, an internal combustion engine car, and it's like. You you could make a car with an internal combustion engine operate just like a Tesla operates. That like those they're not. Yeah, the, the user interface has nothing to do with the propulsion system. Right, and I, I like don't get me wrong. I think that Tesla's user interface does some some interesting stuff, and they've streamlined some things. And, and it also does uh, some really terrible stuff. Right, it's 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 like. But that's not unique to Tesla, though. Correct. Like there's the good and the bad. And I just like I was like, wow, this is my my head hurts after reading. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, no, I haven't figured it out. But I also didn't want to slam uh, FCA because I'm sure that it's something that uh, if they're not aware of it, once they are aware of it, they can they can figure out and fix. And I'm, so, I'm sure uh, I'm sure Nick Cap will be right on it. He'll, he'll get it all fixed up for you. Yeah, I, it, it's not it's it's not a big deal, especially because the thing goes back soon. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, anyway, well, you're driving uh, the the Buick Regal Tour X, right? Yeah. Uh, so I spent spent the last week with the uh, the Regal Tour X. You know, when when Buick announced the, the new generation Regal last year, they surprised us all. Um, you know, the the previous generation Regal, which uh, like this one is. Uh, essentially a rebadged version of the Opel Insignia from Europe. Um, you know, the last generation, they only brought it over as a four-door sedan. Um, in Europe, it was available as a five-door hatchback, um, you know, which is, you know, more of a, uh, it looked like the sedan, but, uh, you know, it was, it was sloping back. So, you know, it wasn't, wasn't like a, you know, traditional, um, you know, short wagon hatchback, but, you know, more of like the Audi A5 Sportback style. And then they also had a wagon. And at one point back in the earlier part of this decade, I know GM was actually evaluating the, the wagon, bringing the wagon over here. And they never did for the previous generation. Uh, but when they launched this new one, they dropped the, the four-door sedan version and went with just the Sportback, as they call the five-door hatch, or the wagon. Except because Americans won't buy wagons, they um, they re they branded it as the Regal Tour X, um, and they actually call it a crossover, um, even though it's only only sits an inch higher than the standard Sportback Regal. Uh, but it does have you know the the black matte black wheel arch extensions and uh, you know a little bit of uh, faux trim in the in the front fascia that you know kind of 
uh, hints at the possibility of, you know, that it might sort of look like um, a, a skid plate under there. You know, not that you would ever take one of these, you know, on anything worse than a gravel road. Um <laughs> You know, but it's it, it's a wagon, you know, call it whatever you want. It's a wagon. And frankly, it's a really good wagon. Uh, you know, I, I, I liked it a lot. There, there's a lot to like about this car. You know, I think it's it's a really good size, you know, for a midsize uh, family car. You know, it doesn't sit, you know, particularly tall, which personally is fine for me. I know a lot of a lot of customers today prefer something that sits up higher. Uh, but, you know, this in, in a lot of ways, you know, this this is kind of equivalent to something like an Audi all road uh, or a, Vo- a Volvo uh, V60 uh, cross country, uh, not the XC60, but the, the V60 cross country. It's similar in size to those. Uh, it's actually a little bit longer, a little bit larger than those two cars. But, you know, it's the same basic idea or or, you know, maybe a more premium Subaru Outback uh, wagon. You know, all all the same basic concept where you've taken a station wagon, lifted it a little bit, you know, given it some design cues that, you know, make it look a little more SUV like. Um, Unfortunately, compared to all of those competitors, um, Americans, for some reason, just have not taken to this car, which is which is sad because it's really good. Well, you know, I think the the actual buyer for this car is is possibly that small subset of people who once bought Sobs and now <laughs> have no Sobs to buy. And this is your last gen. Like this is the most modern Sob you can buy. It's still still based on the same stuff that the the nine three was, or at least an evolution of that. And it's yeah. it's a weird little brand. So, uh, you know, you should flock to it. But there's just not that many of them. <laughs> yeah, um, and you know. So far through uh, October of this year, you know, GM had only sold uh, 11,000 Regals uh, in the U.S., you know, which is not much. You know, I mean, they, they stopped they stopped built with the current generation. They stopped building them um, in, in North America and they're importing them from Europe, uh, from Germany, uh, where they're built alongside the, uh, the Insignia. Uh, and given that uh, since launching this car, uh, GM has sold off Opel and Vauxhall to PSA, it's unclear how long they're going to want to keep um, sourcing these cars from Germany. Um, and although the, the Regal is also built in China, you know, where it actually does quite well, it's unlikely that we'll see it, um, you know, get resourced uh, from China, given the, the turret current trade uh, situation with China. So um, it's it's probable that it, within the next 12 months, you know, we'll probably see this car get canceled, which is which is really a darn shame because uh, like I said there's there's a lot to recommend about this thing. You know, it's it's a really sharp looking wagon. You know, it's a, it's a good looking car, um, despite the, the wheel arch extensions, uh, you know, and it's got a really despite or because of they're a nice contrast. Uh, yeah, I mean, to me, I'd say despite I'd, okay. I'd, I'd rather have the, you know, the standard wagon look that you can get on the Insignia in Europe. I and mean, you can you can get it as, you know, this Tourex type on the Insignia or you can get it, you know, as just a conventional wagon. I personally, I would go for the conventional wagon. But, you know, I'm I'm weird. What can I say? Um <laughs> You know, but, you know, it's it's got a lot of utility. You know, there's a lot of space in the back. You know, if you are someone, you know, that has an active lifestyle but doesn't need to go off roading, you know, or, you know, if you like, uh, you know, going and and haunting estate sales on the weekends and, and things like that. 
and you know you want space to to throw stuff in the back you got there's plenty of space in this thing uh there's you know more than enough space for uh you know dog crates if you want to you know take your dog somewhere uh, so there's all you know there's all kinds of things you can do with it and, you just got you just got a new dog. So did your dog come home in this? Uh, yes, the dog did come home in it. Um, you know, <laughs> unfortunately, sadly, we we had to put our old dog to sleep. You know, she was she was decaying quite badly in recent months. You know, she's she was old, um, and so you know she. Uh, we, we lost her, but we got a new puppy. And, uh, so we, you know, we took a road trip. My wife and I took a road trip across the state to pick up, um, to pick up a new puppy. And, uh, you know, she was great in this thing, you know, it's, it's got a nice smooth ride. It's got decent fuel economy and it averaged about 25 miles per gallon. Um, the only powertrain option in the, in the Regal Tourex, uh, this year is, uh, the GM's two liter turbo four cylinder, uh, which in this variant, I think has, uh, 259 horsepower, uh, and 295 foot pounds of torque. Uh, and you know, it's, it's not an especially heavy car, you know, it's about 3,700 pounds. Um, so, you know, it, uh, that, you know, that's plenty of performance, you know, plenty of power for, for this vehicle. Right. And, you know, the wagon, uh, the, the Sportback you can get in front-wheel drive or all-wheel drive. The wagon is only available in all-wheel drive, um, which is, is probably fine. You know, I think most people, you know, will, will not have an issue with that. Well, it's also like, it I, again, this is your Saab 9.3 Aero wagon. Yes. No, exactly. <laughs> but uh although it's, it's a little bit bigger than the nine th- the last nine three was it's probably closer to a nine five yeah okay uh yeah cargo wise it's got like 70 73 and a half cubic feet of of space which yeah like when you fold the back seats down yeah 73 yeah. cubic feet that's pretty that's pretty good um so the holdex system in it is i'm sure it's it's a newer generation but it, it's not like a a full drag kind of all-wheel drive system either so it, right it's, actually it's, it's, just a, it's a it's a twin clutch system that you know completely decouples um you know when it's you know when you don't need the extra traction to the rear wheels uh you know it'll, it'll operate in front wheel drive mode and decouple the one thing i did notice and i'm i'm pretty sure that this is actually the an issue with uh the all-wheel drive rather than the transmission is sometimes under uh some hard acceleration you can feel it uh, it feels like you can feel the 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 center clutch the clutch pack uh, engaging. So there's a, a slight jerk. Not it's not r- real objectionable, but it's it is noticeable. Oh, is it like on like if you take off hard or something? It, yeah. It- uh, yeah, yeah. So as as it's you know, as it's starting to pick up, you'll you'll feel just a, a little bit of a jerk as it as it engages the torque transfer to the rear axle. Um, you know. And, it it could be you know a transmission shift issue, but I don't think it is. I think I think it's uh, I think I think it is the the twin clutch unit because most all wheel drive systems that you find in cars these days use viscous couplings um, mm-hmm. where there's you know it, it's a it's a fluid coupling, so there's no uh, you know hard engagement of it. You know it's it's a it's a smoother system, but it's also not as efficient and and you don't get it you don't get as much maximum torque transfer with a twin clutch system you can do more torque transfer it's a more efficient system but the the downside and and you can completely decouple it the downside is that sometimes you know under certain conditions you can feel it engaging or disengaging and you know so that that was there like i said it's not it's not objectionable but it is noticeable yeah well and the haldex um preloads their uh the the rear drive shaft too so right so that once it um 
once it decides it needs power back there, it's it's almost instantaneous. There's no yeah. sort of like waiting. Right. So that that I don't know if that makes it smoother or less smooth. I, I think. Um, well, I think what it what it does. Uh, it's hard to say. I think it depends a lot on the, you know, probably on the, the way the specifics of how it's calibrated. I think what where it can be a benefit um, is uh, if you're driving in slippery road conditions, which, you know, it really it wasn't very slippery. You know, this past week uh, around here, it was, you know, it was well above freezing. Uh, but if you're driving in slippery road conditions and you need to go from front wheel drive to all wheel drive quickly, you know, before you spin up the fronts too much, um, you know, that can give you a, a quicker engagement. Um, the downside of that is that, you know, you can also sometimes feel it engaging. So it's, it's trade off. So you get better, better performance, but you know, you, you feel that sometimes, you know what we want to feel the machine. <laughs> we're, we're drivers. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, but you know, the, the thing is, this thing is, is actually not a bad value. You know, it starts, the uh, the the Torex starts at just just shy of thirty thousand dollars, and for that you get standard all wheel drive. You get that turbo four cylinder, um, you know. And the one I was driving, I think, was about forty three. That was the Essence model. Okay, that was you have the Essence that, trim, yeah. Yeah, so that was it was pretty much loaded. You know, the Essence starts at about thirty five and a half, I think, and this one was forty three. But you know, the the upside of, of slow sales it means that there's some pretty good deals to be had on these things so if you are interested in in something like this and and I, frankly you know i think if you're not you know if you're not going to be going off-roading you know if you want something that's got a lot of utility um and also has you know all-weather traction capability uh and you know has plenty of room you know this is really the kind of car you should be taking a look at. Uh, I mean, it's, it and, looks like a wonderful wagon with a, especially an essence trim. Like it, it's got a premium look about it and mm-hmm. you're not going to see them everywhere. And uh, it's very well equipped. It's going to be comfortable. Buicks are pretty nice um, inside. You know, they, they're that near luxury uh, brand, um, if not luxury. And you're going to spend I don't know, a lot, several thousand more to step into, you know, the nearest Volvo competitor or uh, an Audi or I'm trying to think of what else you're going to compete. Like you're well, well, well below anything from Mercedes for sure. Yeah. In terms, in terms of comparing it, you know, you know, price and capability wise, probably the closest thing would be the Outback. You know, but the Outback, you know, it's a Subaru, you know, it doesn't quite have that, upscale feel to it that that you're going to get you know even on this buick um you know it, it's nice you know the, 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 you know i'm not not putting down the subarus but it, it is a little more a little more utilitarian let's put it that way uh and you know so if you're if you want something that is more stylish looking and i think i think this is a really great looking vehicle uh you know in either the sportback or the wagon uh body style personally i actually prefer the wagon body style in this thing i think i think it works yeah. really well with the the rest of the shape of the car it's you know it's got nice crisp lines to it um you know and so i, I think it's absolutely worth taking a look at and there's some sort of, some really interesting little design details like you know when you look at the the uh at you know at the rear corners you know there's the the chrome strip that runs across the the top you know from the a pillar across you know, above the side glass down the rear pillar and then it kind of hooks around so that the tail light you know has oh, it, yeah. it, it has like an opening in the middle you know and then the the chrome kind of 
comes, you know, it looks like it's coming down underneath the top part of the tail light and then hooking around in the middle. You know, so it, it, it almost looks like it's, you know, kind of holding it all together. Yeah. Uh, and, it's like, it looks like a J or an L. Yeah. On the side of the you know, car. and it's, it's, it's a, it's a really nice little design detail. And there's a lot of little things like that about the car that I, I liked a lot. Um, on the inside, did you find any of the evidence of sort of bad GM? You know, G- GMs have this this issue. There's like there's good GM and bad GM, and bad GM does some of the old stuff where you've still got a very expensive model, uh, and you you've got really crappy looking pieces that are just out in the open with like flash lines and just junky material and stuff. Like, how is that? Inside, because in pictures it looks great, but then sometimes the reality is you sit in the car and you're like, well, this stuff should not be here in a, a car that's, you know, 30000 or $40,000. No, I didn't really see that at all in, in this one, you know, and that, and that some of that may be, you know, due to, you know, it's Opal heritage, uh, you know, but, you know, even compared to the previous generation Regal, you know, this is definitely felt. Um, you know, more modern, more upscale, you know, the, the previous gen Regal, you know, was designed in like the 2007, 2008 timeframe, 2009, um, you know, and it came out in, in Europe as an insignia around that timeframe. Um, you know, this one looks, you know, looks and feels more upscale than that one did, you know, and it, you know, it looks really nicely integrated, you know, everything, everything fit well, everything felt really good. Um, so I, I, can't really say I had any significant complaints about the the cabin in this one. Okay, and it comes with Apple CarPlay standard and Wi-Fi. All GM yep. seems like GM wants everything to be a Wi-Fi hotspot. Um, all their cars, so that's that's actually pretty cool. Um, it's it's a feature that seems extravagant, but uh, it's pretty handy when you've got multiple people on devices in the car. No, absolutely. Uh, you know, if you're you know, if you're taking a road trip uh, with the kids. You know, you know, every GM vehicle now has OnStar built in. You get five years of basic OnStar basic services included for free. Uh, it's built into the price of the car. Um, and, you know, you can you can get uh, it comes with some um, uh, some cellular data uh, connectivity included as part of that package. You know, if you want more, you can. I think it, you know, for like 10 bucks a month more, 10 or 15 bucks a month more, you can subscribe to a data package for the car. And then, um, you know, if you're taking a road trip, you've got that hotspot in the car, the kids sitting in the back seat, you know, they want to watch some YouTube or something on their tablets, um, you know, or on their laptop or play a game. They can do that, you know, and it's, you know, keeps them entertained. You know, they can, they can do stuff while you're, while you're on the road. And so I think, I think, Things like that, you know, actually are really handy to have, you know, and keeps keeps everything a little more calm and serene when you're when you're taking a long trip. Yeah. Yeah. And actually uh, looking through their connectivity, they they have what's called connected access. And I'm, I'm not sure what the exact details are, but they're saying is 10 years of standard connectivity. And then w- with that, there's there's other stuff that you you can add to it and remote access and stuff like that. And you can use their app to make your phone into a, a fob, basically. So no matter where you are, you can unlock it and start it and all that stuff. Which is like that's something that I think BYU right, and, and, and that's that, that's something that the GM actually launched back in 2010 with the yeah. the first generation Volt is the OnStar Remote Link capability. Yeah. I was going to say GM kind of pioneered that. They're not yeah. the only ones doing it now, but it, it is it is like. 
like some of that stuff is is cool and that's uh i think onstar doesn't get enough credit um it was a very early telematics. It was system. it GM was the first it was the first one back in 1996. Yeah, yeah. G, yep. Like GM has like that's a fantastic product, and they've been really really good at just keeping it up and making it better and improving it. And so, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it, it's funny. Um, you know, one of the things that came up in the past week was uh, there were some stories. You know, that you can now use. You know, if you have a Tesla, you can use their their app to. Um, precondition the cabin of your car which i was surprised that you couldn't do from couldn't day do one before? yeah no um you know so you could you could set the temperature and you know turn on the seat heaters and stuff like that before you got the car you know while it was still plugged in and actually that's something that you know gm had you know f- from day one in the vault in 2010 is you know the preconditioning the cap in fact so does uh so did uh, nissan and the leaf you know so you can you could use the the apps to you know set the cabin temperature um and you know turn on seat heaters and things like that you know while the car was still you know essentially you know it was under their remote start capability you know and since it was an electric vehicle you know remote starting basically just meant turning on the climate control yeah uh, you, and, wanna, you definitely want to do that from shore power you don't want to yeah absolutely you don't you know if you can if you can get the cabin up to temperature before you before you take off you know before you unplug the car you know then you, you're still leaving with a full you're not putting as much load on the battery and so it doesn't hurt your your range as much as as if you're using the battery completely to uh, heat the cabin. Yeah. Yeah. It, I'm surprised that's not, that was something that Tesla didn't have. Um, again, but of course, like, you know, because Tesla announced it, obviously Elon invented it. So, right. And I was going to say that that must be what it is. Like uh, it didn't exist until they did it. So, yeah. Um, but yeah. So how is that latest uh, nav system? Cause the, I, again, like I haven't had a GM in a while, but it looks like they have a, uh, updated their their infotainment system it's not i don't know what do they call it in buick it's not it, uh, it's, it's in, not intel intellink intel but it's yeah. it's essentially like it's the same platform it's, yeah it's, it's the same yeah i mean um basically you know over the last several years they've gone they, they've consolidated everything onto a single platform you know back in 2011 when they first first launched chevy mylink you know over the course of a couple of years you know between 2011 and 2013 as they rolled out these infotainment systems you know they had about i think they had four at one point four different architectures you know that were based on the different electrical architectures of the vehicles. Uh, and then over time, as they redesigned each of the platforms, they, they commonized a lot of that electrical architecture and got them all onto the same system, which was based on the, the platform of Cadillac Q. So Cadillac Q was you know the high-end system, and they basically moved everything over to that and upgraded that significantly as well. You know, the, the early Cadillac Q systems were a bit underpowered. Uh, they were a bit slow. The, the current stuff that you'll find in all the GM vehicles is is you know got plenty of you know it's it's responsive and you know everything works well the interface is fairly uh clean and uncluttered uh you know basically you know the main screen's a grid of icons you have a couple of pages of that you can swipe through to get to your nav and your media settings and things like that all the climate control you know you've got standard you know, rotary knobs and, and uh, switches for to handle the, the things you use most often. Um, and the, then the rest of the stuff that's within the touch interface, uh, you know, it works just fine. And as you said, you know, it's got standard Apple CarPlay and Android Auto support. Um, 
So, you know, it, it all it all just works. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that's that's good. I, my early experience with Q was not great. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't like it. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is this car is like it's a rolling damn shame, you know, because it, it is it, it's everything that we say we want. Right. At least those of us who are. A certain class of enthusiast, I suppose. You know, it's a wagon. <laughs> it's comfortable. Hey, it's, don't start it, any class warfare here now. Yeah, but you know what I mean. Like yeah, it's, in a certain it's, segment of yeah. It's pretty to look at. It's comfortable. I'm sure it's quiet. It's it's probably decently relaxing. And, and, to drive. and one one of the, one of the things I liked about this one is um, the Regal. Uh, you know, they've got you know several different wheel and tire options, but um, the biggest wheel option is an 18 inch wheel. Yeah. Which means well, you don't that need even more, right? So you know, even you know, on an eighteen-inch wheel, you know, the two thirty-five fifty series, it's still got a decent enough sidewall. So you know, one day you know, we're driving, coming home um, on uh, on a back road. Uh, it was a gravel road, and you know, had had a few potholes, and you know, it does fine absorbing that stuff. You know, so it gives you a a, a better ride, better ride quality. Uh, you know, and you, you don't need 22, 23 inch wheels on a car, I, on, a, every, on a car you got to drive on the year, road. Every year I swap the the 18s on the Jeep, the um, three season tires for the winter tires, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has 18s, but that, that's a big tire on that thing. It's a 265 mm-hmm. something. Yeah. Uh, I think it's like 265, 60. That's a big ass tire. They weigh so freaking much. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's the other thing about big wheels and tires is they are really heavy. Yeah. You know, and that, you know, so it, it hurts. It hurts the car in multiple ways. You know, yeah, it, it looks cool. But, you know, you've got a lot more inertia, which means that when you hit a bump or you hit a pothole, um, you know, you're going to feel it a lot more. And then that's amplified by the fact that, you know, as you get to bigger and bigger tires, you have lower and lower profile tires. And an important part of your suspension system in the car is the tire itself. You know, the tires, you know, have compliance in them. They flex as you hit bumps, bumps and expansion strips and potholes. And, you know, if you have a really low profile tire, there's not much sidewall to absorb any of that, to absorb the road texture. And so you end up with both worse ride quality and more um, more noise being transmitted through. And because of all that mass, it also hurts your handling. So you're not gaining anything in handling. You know, the, the reason why we started going to bigger wheels in the first place was to accommodate larger brakes. Yeah. You know, because, you know, back in back in the 80s, when we were running everything on 13 and 14 inch wheels, you know, there was a physical limit on how much brake you could you could fit inside that wheel. Yep. But now as we get into uh, to bigger and bigger uh, uh, wheels, uh, bigger and bigger uh, wheels, we can put more brake in there and. That allows us, you know, that, that allows us to have better braking performance. But, you know, the brakes, as you get bigger and brakes, they also, bigger brakes, they also get heavier. So there's kind of a limit, you know, uh, essentially on, you know, except for the highest performance cars, the highest performance cars, you got about 15 inch rotors on there now. Um, and, you know, that, so the, the, you, you can do that in like an 18 or 19 inch wheel that you don't need to go any larger than that. You know, and most cars you can get by just fine with a 16 or 17 inch wheel and accommodate any brakes you're going to put in there. So going to bigger brakes means, you know, or bigger wheels means it's going to take longer to stop. You can have worse ride quality, worse handling. Uh, 
and you know, it's it's just it does nothing good for the car except you know perhaps the way it looks, you know, depending on your on your sense of style. But it's not worth the it's not worth the trade offs. No, I I got very used to being able to like one handedly move around, uh, you know, fourteen and fifteen inch wheels. Uh, but I- anyway, uh, I just like the damn shame about the Regal is that no nobody's going to buy it, and they're going to discontinue it for the U.S. because yeah. nobody's going to buy it. <laughs> that makes so, me sad. So you know if think you know if you if you want a car like this, you know, go out and get one. You can probably get one of these loaded Regals for you know probably somewhere in the mid thirties, you know, maybe even less than that, maybe even low thirties right now with some of the deals that are out there. And you'd have a great car, you know, at a pretty, pretty decent price point. Yeah, it doesn't look like it's uh, and and you, you can get a variety of different colors. Uh, some of them look really sharp on it. Like there's a dark blue and a very nice red. And anyway, I'm, I'm pretty impressed with the Regal. And, uh, you know, it's, it's it, it just leads me back to that that other GM thing that they tend to do is they make the cars really good and then they cancel. Them. Yeah, <laughs> like we figured it all out. It's perfect now. And it's the last year for it. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, that you, you, yeah, yeah. In the in this business, or really in any business, you know, just making a great product isn't enough. You have to figure out how to sell it too. You have to figure out how to get people to buy it. You know, it's the reality is just because you build it doesn't mean they will come. You know, you you have to get them get the message out there about who this who this product is for, what what it can do, and you know, convince people to try it out. And this is something that in a lot of ways, you know, GM and, and a lot of manufacturers have struggled with over the years. I mean, you know, certainly Ford has had issues with that. Um, you know, and, and most, you know, many, you know, GM has, has had a lot of issues with trying to get their message out there about what, what these different vehicles are and what they can do. Um, you know, so hopefully, you know, if you're listening, you know, if you're, if you're interested in this kind of vehicle, you know, go take a look at the Regal and, you know, Give it a shot. Take you yeah. know, take it out for a test drive. I mean, I think you have to attempt to actually sell the cars if you want to yeah. sell them. And I I don't see a lot of, of that, and especially if it's like a a brand that isn't on everybody's mind. You, you know, the, what I see is that they're all automakers are kind of floundering around trying to figure out how to harness uh, social media and influencers and that kind of stuff. And I think the money that they put into that, uh, they might be able to take a more sort of uh, consultative, experiential boutique sales experience, you know, and and, uh, get the cars in front of the people and uh, move that money there instead of just throwing product at people who may have a lot of followers and may post a little bit, but don't get you much in return so it's just, it's this weird thing where they're, they're trying to figure it out and eventually they will i just uh i don't know what the damage in between is going to be yeah all right shall we move on yeah let's let's hit some topics um so the, i think first things first uh we had a uh facebook message um, yes, and, and, let me, and, and since I, I'm no longer on Facebook, I didn't see this, but uh, fortunately, <laughs> our our friend uh, Dan Mosqueda saw it, and uh, he uh, sent us a screenshot of it uh, last night. So uh, yeah, so so this came from Greg Stewart. 
Um, and I'll, I'll read it. It says, hi, guys. i uh, become a big fan of the podcast and listen to every one you post. Thank you very much, Greg. We appreciate that. Uh, I like that you drive and review a wide range of vehicles from exotics to the everyday types that most of us drive. We bought a Bolt last year in part based on your opinions. It's a great car. I also enjoy the random topics that you guys cover. Uh, thank you very much again. Um, <laughs> and uh, looking to replace a 1997 GMC Safari. And for those of you that don't remember the Safari back in the 1990s, um, GM uh, had a line of, of midsize vans. So, you know, they had the, they had the big vans, you know, the, the big, uh, well, these days they call them the Chevy Express and the GMC Savannah, but you know, the big, the traditional full size vans. It was the, what was it? The Vandura? The uh, yeah, that was well. That was back in the seventies and into the eighties. I think 80s, they called yeah. it the Vandura. Um, but they uh, they had the Chevy Astro and GMC Safari, which were these a little bit smaller uh, rear drive uh, vans. I think they were actually based on the S10s. S10 truck platform. So so complete aside, you could take an Astro or Safari and put um, a Cyclone or. Uh, typhoon powertrain in it. Ooh. Just saying. Tur- turbo <laughs> okay. V6, all-wheel drive, faster than a Ferrari of the same. In a straight, in a straight line. Yeah, right. That, yeah. That's true. Um, once, once you throw curves in there, it's a totally different story. But, but yeah. anyway, yeah, sorry. Anyway, to, to, anyway. <laughs> anyway, so Greg's looking to replace a Safari with something equally as utilitarian, but in a plug-in hybrid form factor. Looks like his only choice is the Pacifica Hybrid. I was hoping GM would come up with something comparable on the Voltec platform. That's the Chevy Volt platform. But they're moving too slowly in that direction. Uh, Safari needs new tires, and that would triple the value of it. <laughs> okay. Um, so I would like to do something soon. Even if they did, uh, it would probably be too much, be much smaller than either the Safari or the Pacifica Hybrid. I scanned back through the the archive, and the closest thing you could find was a review of the Pacifica. Uh, uh, to a review of the Pacifica Hybrid was the standard drive one in episode twelve. Um, might be mistaken, but I'd like to give it a listen. I'll give it a listen. Um, anyway, um, yes, we actually did talk about the Pacifica Hybrid on. Two different episodes. Uh, episode twenty-two uh, was the first instance when I drove it, and then again in episode sixty-seven when you had one, Dan. Yeah. Uh, and we'll include those links in the uh, in the show notes. Um, but uh, you know, let, let's let's kind of revisit the the Pacifica Hybrid a little bit. Uh, sure. I you know the best thing I can say about the Pacifica Hybrid is that the hybrid stuff uh, didn't. Like it didn't stick out, you know, like it was, it's just, it was a normal experience. Uh, it, it got good fuel economy. It, now I believe it had, and I didn't try it, but I believe it had like the, the plug-in capability and stuff. I Yes. Yeah. That, yeah. That, even, even though they, they only call it a hybrid, they don't call it a plug-in hybrid. It is in fact a plug-in hybrid. Right. So, and I think that's, it gets, was like 12 or it, it's got a low amount of EV only miles. Actually, it's, it uh, it's, it's, a, it's EPA rated at, I think, 33 or 34. Oh, that, that's pretty good. See, it's good that we're revisiting it because I don't remember all that much about that stuff. I mean, the Pacifica itself is a great van. What I do like about it is that even in hybrid form, it's still fully utility. You know, you don't really pay for it. The only thing you miss is the stow and go. 
Yeah. And um, so, yeah, unfortunately, because, you know, they, they had to put the battery somewhere to do a plug in hybrid and the easiest space for them to use was the cavity below the seats where um, which is normally used for the stone go for the second row seats. So, if you, you know, on other Pacificas, if you you can. Um, open up the the uh, the flap on the floor there and drop the the second row seats down into these two cavities in the floor um, with the the Pacifica hybrid they use that space for the battery it's a 16 kilowatt hour battery pack and so uh, as a result um, you, you lose that stone go you can still take the seats out um, and uh, and the third row seats you know still flip back into the the cavity at the back of the the cargo bay so you you still have a flat load floor uh back there but um up front you can you can pull the seats out in the traditional way that as you would on other vans and i just checked uh fueleconomy.gov the epa website and yeah the the pacifica hybrids rated at 33 miles um of electric only driving and you know the what you know what chrysler did with this thing you know it's similar to kind of similar to the strategy they've taken with the mild hybrids on the uh, the wrangler and on the ram 1500s is they're trying to keep it as simple as possible you know they're they're not necessarily trying to appeal you know to a green audience but to appeal to a mainstream audience that are interested in in you know, just getting, you know, good fuel efficiency and, and having a, a really functional vehicle. So, you know, if you look at, if you get into like a, a Prius plug-in hybrid or some other plug-in hybrids, you know, you'll find all kinds of, um, oddball stuff you know there's a, you know you can just buttons for EV only modes and, you know, it, it can get confusing for average consumers, you know, that just want to get in and drive. And so what they did is they, they kept it as close as possible to the conventional Pacifica, you know, so there's no EV only modes. There's no special displays. Um, you know, it just shows you, you know, the only thing it shows you in the cluster is, you know, how much electric range you have left. And it's basically you come home at night, you plug it in, you pl unplug it in the morning when you leave and you get, you know, somewhere between 30 and 35 miles of, of all electric driving before the engine starts to run. So for most people, you know, you can do your daily commutes and errands and stuff without ever using any gas in this thing, you know, yeah. as long as you just plug it in at night. And I think that was sort of what I meant to say there. Like the point I was trying to make was like, it doesn't feel vastly different. It's not like the Prius of minivans. Right. It's just, it's another option. Um, I do remember being a little bit disappointed that you don't have control over when you can use the EV uh, mode, but uh, that's not a huge uh, sort of dis point of, of uh, detraction. You know, like, especially because it's a minivan, the solid assumption is that when you head out, you're going to be heading out to do those those tasks, those sort of like daily commute tasks. And you'll be in town. You're either taking and the kids drop, to school yeah. or whatever. So drop the kids off at school or play dates or you know yeah. soccer practice or whatever and just never use any gas. And and I think, you know, for the audience that this vehicle is intended for, I think that's fine. You know, because I, I think most people, you know, once they get over the novelty of having that, they don't people don't want to mess around with, you know, all the different modes. They just want to do what they need to do with a vehicle and, and be done with it. Yeah. And, and so that's, Hey, it's the only game in town. If you want a, a hybrid minivan. And that's the other thing I'm trying to look at is I thought I had heard that there was going to be a hybrid Honda Odyssey coming 
at some point. Yeah, I, I think you know they haven't officially announced it, but you know Honda has said you know that they're going to move towards offering electrified versions of of everything that they have, and so I, I would guess that we will see a hybrid version of the Odyssey before long you know because you know consider that you know the odyssey shares its basic platform with the uh the pilot and uh the rdx the accurate or not the rdx the mdx and the mdx is now available with a hybrid and so probably within the next 12 to 18 months we will see a hybrid you know probably when they do the mid-cycle refresh on the the odyssey so probably sometime later next year we'll see uh, an Odyssey hybrid appear uh, with, you know, basically the same powertrain that's in the, uh, uh, in, in the MDX um, perhaps, and perhaps even with all wheel drive, but you know, that's, that's going to be probably at least a year away before we see that. Um, so in the meantime, you know, this is basically the only, the only vehicle in this class. Um, you know, if you're, if you're looking for something with, you know, car, you know, combination of cargo and, and people hauling capability, you know, something like, you know, something, a van, you know, to replace a, you know, a 20 year old, uh, safari, you know, this, this is the only, and, and frankly, you know, a great option. Uh, and the other thing to keep in mind is because FCA has, you know, has not sold that many plug-in vehicles. They still have, um, you know, you can still get the full $7,500 federal tax credit on this thing. And I don't know where you live, Greg. Um, but you know, in some, in some States, you can also get state, uh, tax incentives on a plug-in. So, you know, starting price on the, the, the Pacifica hybrids about 40 grand. So with the $7,500 tax credit, you're looking at about 32 and a half or so, um, you know, between 32 and a half and, and, you know, 37 to 40, uh, for a fully loaded one. Uh, so you're getting a lot for that for that price point. Well, and my experience with uh, FCA dealers has been that uh, they are more than willing to talk about what it's going to take to get you to drive away <laughs> in that car today. Yeah. Uh, you know, my brother-in-law was talking about the Ram, and he's like, "Yeah, a bunch of people at where he works just like showed up in the same week with brand new Rams of the last generation." He's like, "Yeah, they were just like blowing them out for like fifteen grand <laughs> off." I was like, "Yeah, that's if they're not selling some of those things that they've got an inventory, they'll make you a deal." Um, it, it to me. If if the Pacific is not doing it for you, it might make more sense to, to wait. Like, yes, I understand you don't want to put tires on the old vehicle because it's not worth it. But if it's a safety issue and it's rusty because safaris up here have all rusted away. Um, but if if it's that, yeah, get rid of it. But if it's just you're, you're tired of it, it's an old car or whatever uh, – you put, put the tires on it and just drive it for a year. Put cheap tires on it. Go to, you know – not Chinese tires, <laughs> but uh, like go to, I don't know, discount tire or something. I'm trying to think of like other parts of the country. They don't have the same chains as we do up here in New England, but uh, you know, there's, there's decent tires. There's, you can there's put tire rack yeah. and, you know, yeah. discount and bell tire and, and, you know, various other ones. Yeah. The, the other thing, you know, to consider, you know, given the fact that, you know, the kind of the way the industry is going in response to what customers are, are actually buying, um, you know, there's there's also going to be a bunch more options this year um, in the utility sector. So, you know, uh, I you know I can fully sympathize with preferring to stay with a van form factor rather than go to an SUV. Uh, but 
um, coming up in the in the spring. Uh, there will be an all new Ford Explorer, which is based on the same platform as the Lincoln Aviator that we saw a couple of weeks ago in LA, and the. Uh, that Explorer uh, is almost certainly going to have uh, a plug-in hybrid uh, variant as well, uh, similar to what's in the the Aviator. Uh, it will certainly have at least a hybrid, but pro- I think it's also going to have a plug-in hybrid variant because they've already said uh, that the uh, police interceptor utility, which is based on the Explorer, is going to be available with plug-in hybrid. So presumably the um, the conventional version, you know, the, the civilian version, will also have the plug-in hybrid available as an option. Uh, so that's that's another alternative and you know one of the one of the things that ford has done with the design of that platform is they you know they, they've uh they've designed the platform to accommodate uh you know the batteries for hybrids and plug-in hybrids which means that the the plug-in hybrid variant doesn't have uh you know the, the battery doesn't intrude into the cargo space it's actually packaged underneath the floor under the second row seats uh similar to the the pacifica um but only on the only on the right the passenger side of the vehicle gas tanks on the the driver's side uh and so uh, there, you know, you can fold, you know, the second and third row seats down. Uh, you're probably not going to get quite as much space in there, you know, because it's got, you know, conventional doors as opposed to sliding doors. You know, it's not going to be as utilitarian as a van, um, but, you know, it's another option to consider. Yeah. And I was going to say, if you want more efficiency or a newer van, uh, you could also check out some of the options that we've got now that are going to be way more efficient than the Safari, such as the Transit, the Ford Transit Connect or the Ram ProMaster City or ProMaster or, you know, the Ford Transit. All of those are uh, yeah, much, except much I think, newer. I, I, yeah, except I don't think it so, sounds like he doesn't want to go that small. Right, and so that's I. I don't know. Can you get a ProMaster, not the city, but a ProMaster in a passenger configuration? I don't. I don't yes, know. you can. Oh, you can. Okay. Yeah. Um, because yeah, like those, even the the like the the ProMaster is certainly the same size, or if not a little larger than um the Safari. Oh, it's, it, it's quite a bit larger than the Safari. It's got a a you know a much newer power. The, actually, the the Transit Connect. Transit Connect, might, is, I think, might be might be the closest in size to yeah. the Safari. Yeah, and then um, just like the regular Transit too, not the high roof one. Where you can get a yeah. low roof Transit in a passenger configuration. Uh, that may may also be a little bit more than you want to spend. But that, I mean, God, yeah. that is a fantastic Although, vehicle. Yeah, you can uh, actually. I don't think you can get the Transit one fifty with the diesel. No. I think it's only the two fifty and three fifty is available with the diesel. Yeah, I think the only engine for the Transit one fifty actually is the three point seven. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there, there's some other options to consider out there, but yeah, maybe, maybe take a look at the transit connect and see if that's big enough for you. Cause it's actually surprisingly roomy, even though it's relatively small on the outside and, you know, because it's, it's front wheel drive, it's got a lower floor than the Safari did, did, you know, one, one of the issues with the Safari and the Astro, because it was based on that S10 platform, uh, you know, which was rear wheel drive, it had a relatively high cargo floor. And so, you know, for its size, it, you know, it was not, you know, hugely 
roomy inside compared to some other options. Um, you know, so you might want to take a look at the um, at the the Transit Connect, the Ford Transit Connect, especially the long wheelbase version, and see if that's big enough for you. Because you know that's you know it's got uh, I think almost seventeen hundred pounds of payload capacity uh, in that thing, and it's it's surprisingly large inside. You know, the it's you know the current generation one is based on the mid roof version that they have in Europe. Yeah. It's it's the classic like the original minivan formula. It's focus platform hardware. Yep. And it's so it's it's you know small front wheel drive passenger car stuff and they made a van out of it. It's not like even the Pacifica now which is its own sort of dedicated platform and it that doesn't it's not shared with any cars or Chrysler doesn't make any cars anyway, <laughs> but, but you know what I'm saying? It's like, it, it goes back to that. So it's not well, actually, they still have the 300. That's, that's true. Um, a 300 based van would actually be kind of cool. Um, but it's, it, the, the transit connect goes back to that, that original formula where it, it's, it, it, you know, C class car components made into a van. So it, it mostly drives like a C class car, which it is a good thing. And it, 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 to me, like that's, that's a minivan and it, should work just fine but uh it also gets like supposedly 24 in the city 29 on the highway economy and, wise. and there's there's also a, uh, a diesel coming to the uh the transit connect in the spring oh really that's yeah. cool yeah they're they're launching a version with a diesel engine so uh just looking at the uh no it doesn't have the specs and the the passenger the um cargo specs i'm looking looking at the uh uh, the old on the fueleconomy.gov site oh. to see if they have the uh, the the volume the cargo volume in here, but they don't they don't list it for that one. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll I'll take a look after we're done and and add it to the show notes, you know, to see um, what the cargo volume compared to the uh, of the the Safari compared to the Transit Connect was. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's it's worth checking out anyway. And unless you just you, you want to wait until there's some more options, um, you know, throw some tires on the thing. And at that point, at least, you know, you've spent the money on the tires and not a monthly payment. And they're <laughs> kind of even <laughs> out. Right. Uh, one set of tires equals a monthly payment for some kind of car. So um, but just one you pay once and you're done. So I don't know. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's let's hit up on another another topic. Um Let's see. We've got a couple. Do we do we want to dive right into Tesla or do we want to talk about a couple other things first? Uh, let's see. You know what? We've been going 52 minutes. Let's skip Tesla and, uh, for now and, and go to the other stuff. <laughs> okay. I don't really want to talk about the Tesla board of directors. Um, but Porsche Taycan Turbo. Taycan. Taycan. Taycan? Saying that wrong. It's Taycan. Yes. Taycan. Porsche says it's Taycan. Taycan. No, it's Taycan. <laughs> Why did they name it? Um, <laughs> why did they give it a number? Like, could it, could they give it like a nine something? Like, uh, whatever. Nine fourteen? No, that's been used. Can't, can't do that one. Uh, so anyway, yeah, the the Taycan for for those uh, that haven't been paying attention is uh, Porsche's first EV. Uh, it's coming out in the spring. Uh, it's the production version of what we saw as the Mission E concept a couple of years ago. Um, and uh, we've got some new information about it this week. Um, base price is going to start in the low 90s. Uh, so similar in, in price to a uh, comparably equipped uh, Model S. Um, and, you know, of course, 
because it is a Porsche, um, you will be able to escalate that price fairly rapidly um, with, <laughs> with, with, oh, at least with injudicious use of the option sheet. Um, you know, and, and, and this applies to all Porsches and, and frankly, all German cars. Uh, you can, you can rapidly escalate the price uh, by adding stuff. And, you know, depending on how much you want to personalize it, you know, Porsche will be more than happy to take your money um, for any degree of personalization that you want. Uh, but, um, one of the, the interesting things that, uh, that came out this week is their choice to, um, for badging for the performance version of the Taycan, um, which will apparently be called the Taycan Turbo, um, in keeping with the 911 Turbo and, and various other but, Porsche Turbos over the years. But to be clear, it's not anything to do with like having an internal combustion engine that's turbocharged even as right there there is there 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 is there is no there is no internal combustion there is no turbocharger um but you know it's more it's more like you know think about it you know back in the old days you know of pcs that used to have a turbo button on the side oh that's on the front that you know you could press the turbo button and you know kind of crank up the clock speed on the on the processor right and your your what it was it the 486 dx2 had the math coprocessor That's right. Yeah. Hey, I I had a my first PC was a two eighty six with a two eighty seven Matco processor. There you go. And and a, and a turbo button on the front of the case. Yeah. It's just, what did the turbo button actually do on those? It didn't increase the like the overall clock speed, did it? Uh, you know, it was hard to tell because they were so <laughs> slow. slow that, anyway, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in some cases, I think it actually did increase the or cr- increase the maximum clock speed. In some cases, uh, you know, in normal mode, it would run at a slower clock speed. So, you know, it was more that um, it was be- when the turbo button was not on, it was underclocked as opposed to, you know, overclocking it, you know, so you were I just see. getting the maximum that you paid for when you press the turbo button. Makes no sense to me. It, but anyway, like, of course, yeah. the turbo button's always press. Right. So, uh, yeah, of course. So, you know, they, they will apparently be calling the, the, the performance version of the Taycan, the, the turbo, um, you know, because that's in keeping with, with the Porsche brand. Well, and I think that that's actually smart. Um, I don't. Uh, we can poke holes at it as um, car people and say, "Well, what? Uh, well, actually, there's no turbocharger." But I don't think it matters. I think that people understand that hey, turbo is supposed to equal powerful and fast. It doesn't matter how it achieves that power or speed. It's just that you know that turbo is shorthand for performance. It, done. Like that's easy. There, there was some confusion about whether Porsche was actually going to call its charging network turbochargers though right like that's still that's that's yeah well porsche porsche's yeah um porsche's not gonna have you know the porsche brand is not gonna have its own charging network um porsche dealers you know because porsche is part of the volkswagen group um you know they when you buy a Taycan or any other Porsche EV, you will have access to, you'll, you'll get some free charging at electrify America stations. Um, and you know, th- those are owned by Volkswagen group and then, uh, Porsche dealers will all, all every Porsche dealer will have a 350, 350 kilowatt charger on site as well. Um, and so they may or may not call those turbochargers. We'll, we'll see, um, you know, Hey, you know, if you can call, you know what Tesla has superchargers. You know why not call it a turbocharger? I mean, it's it's just meaningless branding anyway. So. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a pretty good slap at Tesla. And you know, for my money, I would very much uh, consider 
a Porsche EV before I, I considered a Tesla, not because of, of Tesla you know, performance or technology or whatever, but because of Porsche performance and technology and their capability of just building a, a really solid automobile. They know how to make the cars and make them really well. And they're very careful engineers. And I think for all, of the, I mean, they both have their share of just organizational chaos going on. So I, I don't know. I, I've been a lot more impressed with the Porsches that I've been in and driven and seen in in terms of just being really thoughtfully built and engineered cars than than the the teslas i've kind of looked at yeah i I could not disagree with that so (laughs) all right moving on um we also had some news from from Hyundai the other day um, that they are going to add uh, fingerprint sensors uh, starting on the Santa Fe uh, in 2019 in certain market markets. They haven't said exactly where yet, um, but uh, the fingerprint sensor will be on the the door handles and on the um, on the start stop button uh, in place of using a key fob. Yeah. And um, I, my assumption is that people are expecting me to hate this idea for a lot of reasons, at least the people that uh, know me, because they, they tend to think that I'm rather paranoid about that kind of stuff. And I do take security and, and you know, my, like my data and privacy very carefully. But I honestly don't don't have a problem with this. I've, I've got a fingerprint sensor on my MacBook Pro and it, it's very handy. You know, you don't have to type yeah. in your password. It I mean, I've, I've had fingerprint sensors on my last three phones, um, you know, and it, it is great. And, you know, the the thing is, it, in this case, you know, in this kind of application, it will actually probably be more secure than um, than using the fob. You know, because, you know, one of the, the issues we've had with key fobs in the last few years is, you know, we've had some security issues because of the way that they work, uh, you know, where... There, the the car itself is actually uh, broadcasting a signal that uh, authenticates with the fob. Oh, you know, right. So the, the the car has a, a longer range. Uh, it's broadcasting, you know, excuse me, more power, uh, you know, more powerful signal than the key fob itself. The, so the key fob you know, has a shorter range signal. So when you're within range of the the car you know the fob will detect the signal from the car but it's not until you get you know to within about three to five feet of the car that the the authentication signal from the key will reach the car and so then it um uh, then it'll unlock and you know you can once you get in you can start the car the the problem with that mechanism is that you know some hackers have figured out that you can do what what's known as a relay attack you know so for example if you're sitting in a restaurant or even sitting in your house and your car is parked out on the street or out on the out on the out in your driveway you can you can for fairly little money you can build a little device that will pick up the signal from the car and then, you know, they can sit outside the building where you're sitting. You know, if they're within, within range of your key, you know, it will pick up the authentication signal from your key. The key won't be in the, in, within range of the car, but it can pick that up and rebroadcast that to the car. 
and then unlock the car and then they can drive away with your car. And so this is, you know, this has happened. Uh, BMW had an issue. They had to do a big recall uh, to update software on, on, you know, I think a couple million of their cars in Europe. Um, you know, uh, Tesla has had issues with this. Other manufacturers have had issues with the same kind of attack and they're, they're finding ways around that. But, you know, the very fact that you don't actually have to have physical contact with the vehicle, um, you know, can be problematic. You know, there, there's, you know, anytime that there's wireless signals bouncing around, those can be intercepted and, you know, bad guys can do stuff with it. So, you know, having a fingerprint, you know, having a biometric identification that you have to actually be in physical contact with the vehicle to use is actually not not such a bad thing. Now, one of the things I saw somebody post on um, on Twitter last night was that this would actually be great for shared vehicles. It'd be a great way for authentication for shared vehicles. Well, and, and they, that's they talk about that. that. Yeah, well, that's that's where I draw a line. I think it's actually a really bad idea for shared vehicles. I think it's great if for your oh. you know, for your own vehicle, but for shared vehicles, it's not a good idea. Well, when I think of shared vehicles, I still think uh, sort of uh, a little bit more insular, like shared amongst a family. You know, like how I have a father yeah. and my wife no, has that, a father. Yeah, for yeah for for that, I, you know, I mean this this particular instance that I'm referring to, they're talking about like for mobility services for car sharing, ride hailing, that sort of thing, uh, as an authentication system. Yeah, no, and that's yeah that. <laughs> That's where that's yeah, you don't want to do it for that for shared you know, within a family. It's great because, you know, everybody can, you know, can program their fingerprint into the car and then, you know, that can be tied to their own personal settings. You know, so you, you know, um, you know, you get, you know, you press your finger on the, on the, on the sensor on the door and it can preset your, the seat and the steering wheel and the mirrors and everything. And, and your favorite radio stations, um, you know, somebody else gets in, they, you know, presets theirs. Uh, and even, you know, you have fingerprint sensors on the driver and passenger side. And so depending on, you know, who's driving, you know, whether it's one spouse or the other, um, you know, whoever's in the driver's seat, you know, they, you know, they press and it sets the seat for their preferences. Um, you know, so then, you know, if you trade places when you get in the car, it, you know, automatically does that. So that's actually really handy. Um, but you, what you don't want to do is use this for more broadly shared mobility service vehicles. Well, I don't understand why you'd need a fingerprint sensor for cars like that anyway, given that, um, uh, you can just unlock those cars and get into them with like you could do that with an app based approach right well i think the 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 idea uh in theory you know is that you don't even have to have the phone you don't even have to use a phone or use an app to do that you know you can just walk up to the car you know put your finger on there and authenticate and, and the car will unlock and you can drive off and it will charge your account and everything uh as needed you know but the problem with that is now your biometric data is stored somewhere where you don't control it. Right. That's like, you know, that's on, like iris scanning. It's like, no, that's fine. I, I'll have the inconvenience. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but it, yeah, it, I think uh, the, for like a personally owned vehicle, it, it's a really good idea. It makes, makes a lot of sense. You know, oh yeah, it, it absolutely. Does, it does uh, get you out of that um, sort of radio communication way of of getting into the cars and and so that's actually it's really elegant now what they have to figure out is okay what if the battery's dead 
Yeah. How do you get into the car to say pop but, the hood? But I mean, but I mean that that's an issue even if you've got a fob. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I get yeah. it. Like it's, I'm just now clicking off. Like okay, if you if you have a fob, you still have to have some way to get into the car if the fob's battery is dead or the the car's battery like. Yeah, and you're you know even with the fingerprint sensor, you're still going to have a key as a, a physical key as a backup system. You still you still need to have some physical mechanism to get into the vehicle, even even if the battery's dead or or whatever, you know, or you know if if for some reason it can't read your fingerprint. Uh, I mean, if you've used a, a fingerprint sensor, you know, on a phone, you know, sometimes your fingerprint's wet or if it's too cold, you know, you you still want some backup mechanism yeah. to get in to get into the vehicle. No, and it, but it's an elegant move by by Hyundai and a Hyundai of all companies too. Like it's, yeah. it seems like and, well, and I and I think this system is actually it's probably the one uh, a system that was uh, devised by Synaptics. Uh, I talked to the guys from Synaptics a, a few months ago, and you know they've been working on this for car applications, um, you know, using, you know, using fingerprint sensors, both for access to the vehicle and also access, uh, in the, um, you know, in the vehicle to access, you know, certain services and things like that and, and settings. Um, it, you're right. It, it is, it is a very elegant solution. Yeah. And it's when they talk about it in the, the article, the, the piece from the drive that talks about it, they say that over time it will actually get better. It'll learn your fingerprints better as you continue mm-hmm. to use it um so it should actually become more accurate and and more you know more ever free as your ownership experience goes on obviously to a point but um yeah it, it's instead of debuting on something in the the high end it's it's the 2019 santa fe which is like that's solidly in the middle of everything so yeah. that, that's, that's and, and they haven't said, they, they said it'll be in selected markets. They haven't said where. So I don't know if it'll be here in the U.S. at launch or not. Uh, but at some point, it'll probably get here. It'll wind up here at some point. We'll get it. I, I like it a lot better than the idea of turning your phone into a key fob or something, too. Like, I just it's uh, yeah, I like elegant solutions. That seems like an elegant solution. <laughs> I'll, I'll get one as a press car eventually and complain about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what we do. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, um, uh, let's see. We, I think we, we also had one question, uh, from Twitter. Twitter, Yes. Yes. Uh, from Florian, um, he asked, uh, not sure if we've uh, already have an episode on different arrow bits on cars today. A breakdown of wings, spoilers, dams, uh, diffusers, etc., and their perceived versus real effects for daily drivers would be great. Um, we can cover both engineering. We cover both engineering and sales, so I'll be, trust you'll be clear. That I trust you to clear the air. Nice. So I like. What tell you us about that. arrow. Uh, arrow. So most of the stuff that you see as obvious arrow is just nonsense. Most of the <laughs> stuff you have to look for is real. Um, pay attention to uh, areas like around the mirrors and on the edges of the car, like the, the, the taillights often. And you'll see these little bumps. Um, they're they sort of like lozenge shaped uh, or... Um, I don't, I don't know how else to describe them. They're, they're tapered and, and elongated. Those are vortex generators and they smooth the airflow as it uh, goes around things and detaches from the car uh, for less wind resistance uh, underneath any modern car. You can see all sorts of covers and panels and NACA ducts and stuff to put the air where they want it to go. Um, there's usually now what I'm seeing is there's an opening in the, the, um, 
the the wheel liners uh, to let the high pressure air from the front air dam, the lower part of the the, the front uh, air dam, flow through and come out there and create a bubble around the wheels, uh, which again smooths wind resistance and uh, increases fuel economy. So there's all kinds of error all over everything that you don't yeah. necessarily that, notice. That- that last one is kind of an interesting one. They call them, they call, it's called air curtains. You know, and one of the biggest sources of drag on the car is, is your wheels rotating. You know, that the, the wheels, as the wheels rotate, especially at highway speeds, you know, generates a lot of turbulence. Hmm. And, and so the, what you, what you mentioned there, that, that little slot in the, if you look at the leading edge of the wheel well, and then you look from the front, you know, usually somewhere near the, the somewhere in the front corners, you'll find there's a, a vertical slot where the air can pass through there. And so it's taking that high, that high pressure air off the front, as you said, and it's directing it and basically creating a, a curtain of air that flows across the surface of the wheel um, and helps reduce the drag. And I've, you know, I've been told that it can reduce the drag by uh, like the drag coefficient by up to about, uh, I think eight to 10 counts of CD. So like if the, if the, <laughs> that's crazy. If, well, you know, so so that's you know that's uh, eight eight to ten hundredths. So, like, if the without the air curtain, if the drag coefficient was 0.33, for example, that might cut it down to 0.32. That's or point three point three two eight and three two two something okay, like that. Okay, right. that's that's not quite as big as I thought, but yeah. it's still. That's but it, big. but it, but it's 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 not it's not an insignificant amount. Uh, you know, and the other thing, you know, other, you know, other major sources of drag, you know, on the car, um, you know, are obviously the mirrors. Um, and the other thing with the, with the mirrors is not just drag, but also wind noise. You know, that's, that's an area where you get a lot of noise and it's noise that tends to be noticeable inside the cabin. Yeah. And so, as, as you said, you'll see that, you know, uh, if you look at the, the, the mirror housings, you know, on a lot of newer cars, you'll find little ridges, little bumps. And what those are doing is, you know, trying to um, control the airflow over the, the mirror housing um, and, you know, reduce the wind noise there. Um, another spot where there's where there's a lot of air uh, drag generated is as the air comes off the back of the car. Yeah. You know, you, you know, we've all seen the, the concept cars from the 70s, 80s and 90s. You know, the, the classic teardrop shape, you know, is that minimal aerodynamic shape, aerodynamic drag shape. But obviously it's not practical to put this long tapered teardrop on the back of a car. Yeah. Well, uh, and that's not actually as good as you might. They might think either, especially I think was it uh, Cam who did all the experiments about having mm-hmm. an abrupt, um, abrupt rear to the shape that actually detaches uh, more, uh, more efficiently or something from that. I forget. It's, yeah. it's complicated, but you, but. <laughs> right? But but you still need you still need to control that airflow off the back, you know, as it comes off the back of the body. Yeah. And so what you'll find on a lot of on a lot of modern cars is you'll find you know these kind of vertical ridges, you know, molded into the shape of the bumper or the, you know, the, the rear metal, um, you know, in, in, around, you know, around the back edge. You know, if you, if you look at almost any modern car, you'll see these various, uh, you know, ridges and, and sharp edges. And what those are there for is to control that, to manage that airflow, you know, the separation of the airflow coming off the back. Because without that, if you just had a smooth surface that curved around the back of the car, you know, then then the airflow will, you know, will tend to follow that bodywork. And then you get this all this turbulence behind the car and it generates a lot of drag. So is that is that like um, 
the idea of a diffuser where you're actually taking the the airflow that goes under the car like a tunnel and then you're you're um you're creating a pressure drop so you're the diffuser well, that's actually yeah that's actually different that the the diffuser is more for downforce right, so that's something say, that came out of racing don't, you turn the car into a wing <laughs> <laughs> right. So the, the diffuser, yeah, takes that under underbody airflow and creates a low pressure zone at the back end of the car to, you know, to try to suck the car down. And on road cars, you know, you'll see, you know, a lot of, you know, road cars that have something that looks like a diffuser on a race car. That's not actually very effective yeah, in most show. cases. It's it's more for show in most cases, although it's, it's not, not always. I mean, in some cases it is actually effective and generates some downforce, uh, but usually only on really high performance cars, but on, uh, you know, on a lot of other cars, you, you'll see that, but just in general, you'll see, you know, these sharp edges that are, you know, subtle, subtle, you know, ramps and things like that, that have been molded into the bodywork at the back end of the car to manage that airflow so that instead of wrapping around the back in, in that turbulent fashion, it flows back and kind of, uh, you know, if you, if you actually, you know, look at the airflow and, you know, you go into a wind tunnel with, uh, you know, where they've got the little smoke generators, you'll see the air coming off the back of the car and, you know, fall, going back, flowing back as if there was that teardrop shape back there, but without actually having anything physically there. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, the other thing is active aerodynamics that we're starting to see, um, you know, with the most common form of that being um, the uh, active grill shutters. Right. Um, and that's that's subtle. That's on all kinds of stuff that you wouldn't think. It's, yeah, it's it's on it's increasingly becoming, uh, co you know, standard on most new vehicles. Um, you know, I think one of the I think the first one in North America to get it was the first generation Chevy Cruze uh, back in 2010. Um, when it, when it launched, it had active grill shutters on the eco model and now they're, you know, they're putting them standard on almost everything. Um, you know, so basically, you know, again, one of the main air general uh, sources of drag is the air flowing through the engine compartment. Yeah. And you need some of that for cooling the engine. But, um, you know, depending on the load conditions and, you know, ambient temperature and everything else, you know, you don't necessarily need all the airflow through there. So if you can block that off, uh, then you can you can dramatically reduce the drag of the car, of the vehicle, um, you know, in a, in a very simple and cost effective way. You know, and then when you need, you know, when the, the engine's under load and you, you need to do more cooling, you can just open them up right. and let extra airflow through there because if it goes into the engine compartment it has to go out of the engine compartment yes so, uh, yeah that's that's an issue you've got to you've got to then sort out and it, it seems easy but then when you you uh when you get past sort of theory and design you've got to figure out ways to get it in and out uh cleanly and you know take that heated air and move it elsewhere and i don't know whether it usually go i think it goes probably under at this point, once it's been heated, um, um, some of it goes under, some of it goes up, you know, uh, under the, the back edge of the hood, you know, and up over the windshield. Um, so those are the two main places where it goes. Yeah, because like it would, it would, there's that low pressure area behind the front wheels that, you know, fancy cars, sporty cars sometimes have fake vents there. That's also a good place to vent it because you'll get the high pressure at the front and the low pressure at the back. So it'll flow from high to low and it'll just vent the air. The, the engine compartment very nicely, but I don't know what that does to the airflow on the side of the car. So, um. and you know, this this is you know one of the interesting things you know in aerodynamic development you know over the last ten or fifteen years, I guess you know 
probably going back to the early 2000s uh, is when they really started doing this. Um, you know, when they're you know when when they're designing new cars, you know, before they build a full scale model and put it in the uh, the wind tunnel, you know, they'll do um, simulation. They'll do computational fluid dynamics simulation. Yep. And you know, so one of the big areas they focus on with that, you know, is modeling the airflow through the engine compartment. And then the other thing they do, you know, they build before they build full scale clay models, they'll build one third scale clay models. And again, you know, it's it's hard to model some of that. It, it used to be hard to model, you know, that that sort of stuff uh, with these uh, one third scale models, but. Um, with the uh, the advent of um, 3D printing or additive manufacturing, that's an area where they've been able to actually um, really improve aerodynamic development because now you can quickly build a, a model of the powertrain and suspension. You know, and suspension components are another mm. big source of drag. Um, so you can you can mo- you can quickly build a, a model of that stuff. You know, and then build your your clay model. You know, the the clay body model around that. And so you can you can actually physically test, you know, the airflow through the engine compartment and around all the components of the engine, through the radiator, through the engine and and around the engine and and everything else. So you can actually have a very detailed physical model and validate that stuff before you build a full size vehicle. And that's all very important because uh, you want to break it in the computers <laughs> before yes. you actually break it. Long, long before you build, b- before you start casting parts and and machining parts, because that's where you know changes become very expensive. If you can change yeah. that stuff early before you start making you know full scale parts, um, it's a lot cheaper than than making those changes later on. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't aerodynamics that. Um, in this particular example, but in the book uh, "Car" by Mary Walton about the development of the the nineteen ninety five Taurus, the the, mm-hmm. the, the the basically the last generation Taurus, um, when they started, they had they one of the goals was to boost the structural rigidity, and they they did. They the initial design had very strong you know uh, unibody, but they for styling and they just they kept taking. Uh, taking structure away or just like scooping it out for style. It's a very highly styled car. And they sort of forgot or, or it was earlier stages of this, but th- there was one of those uh, moments where they, they sort of reran uh, some of the, the, the testing uh, and they realized that they had taken away a lot of their body rigidity. And so to get it back, they used a, a beam across the car. Uh, and that, that was all like they, they figured that out computer wise before they actually started building prototypes. So it was like, oh, we screwed ourselves. <laughs> we, yeah. we need to put a pipe basically from A pillar to A pillar across the car. And I remember when that car launched, that was one of the big things that they they actually used as a, a, a press release point was like, Hey, it's got this new cross car beam that makes the structure rigid. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> we did that because, uh, we, we screwed up somewhere we, else. We screwed up and we, we carved away too much of our structure. Um, it's just interesting, like how that, that stuff works. And that's an example of it. Like you don't always have that ability to, to save your ass. <laughs> and a lot of people got mad at that move developing the Taurus because every other team, the electrical team, the HVAC team, the interior team, like they needed to now make room for a pipe <laughs> to go yeah. across the car where like defroster ducks and stuff are going to be. So, uh, yeah, you don't always have that luxury. Um, it's, it's, it's super, super interesting. Uh, and and it's it's a lot more thought about than I think, uh, or a lot more sort of heavily developed than um, you might think. Just looking at the car, 
Yeah, but you know, if you if you you know spend a little time, you know, taking taking a look around the the body of any modern vehicle, you'll find all kinds of little details that, you know, none of that stuff is is put there, you know, just or most of that stuff is not put there just, you know, as flourishes for the designers. Yeah, it's not the 50s because, anymore. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, the thing is, you know, when you when you put, you know, little, you know, extra creases and things like that, that makes it harder to manufacture. It makes it harder to stamp those body panels. You know, so, I mean, there's some stuff that's done, you know, purely for aesthetics. But, you know, there's a lot of little details that are fairly subtle that, you know, have a significant impact on the drag. And so now, you know, today we have cars that have lower drag than we had 20 years ago, but that don't necessarily look like, you know, in the 1980s and 90s, what we thought of as low drag bodies. You know, they, they look, you know, more more traditional in some respects because we we're able to, um, you know, find the things that actually really impact the 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 drag and the airflow around the vehicle um in in meaningful ways and focus on those things yeah yeah so i hope that we have uh provided a significant uh look in to the aerodynamics and vehicles for our friend florian and uh yeah if there's oh what there's one one other detail i forgot to mention um you know on, on a lot of vehicles you have uh air springs like for example, on the uh, uh, yeah. on, on the Ram, the Ram, yeah, I've been yeah using it has them. optional optional air springs. Yeah, um, you know, on the the steel on the the versions of the Ram that have steel coil springs, um, there's actually you know there's a front air dam that lowers down at highway speeds, you know, to reduce the airflow under the vehicle and reduce drag. They don't have that on the version with the, the air springs because they actually use the air springs to lower the vehicle down instead. So it actually lowers the whole vehicle at highway speeds, which reduce, excuse me, reduces the frontal area of the vehicle and reduces the overall drag. Yeah. So, so there's other things that, that are not visible, but that actually have an impact on aerodynamics. Yeah. And I think that that low air dam, the, uh, the GMT 900s had us, especially on the SUV versions, they have that air dam that goes like way, way down to the pavement. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yep. For the same reason, you know, but they, it wasn't active. It was just like, it's, it's there. The Tahoe is going to just, it's going to be three inches off the ground. So, but yeah. All right. I think that's it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, uh, we're at the end of 2018, the end of another arbitrary period of time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, we'll be back, uh, sometime, uh, early in the new year to, uh, talk again about uh, what's going on in the car space in the meantime uh please uh continue to leave us some some feedback and some reviews in itunes and apple podcasts and whatever other app you use for podcatching if it has a uh, uh, review capability and uh you send us questions and we'll try to answer them all right see you next time bye bye Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, 
planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.